I'm Joseph. And I'm Nick. And this is Fish Jelly. Mm. Oh. That wasn't as enthusiastic as the last time. Oh. Well. It's been a long week. It's been a long week. It's Saturday night. Mm-hmm. And I'm feeling alright. I've already had dinner. Mm. And a drink. Shout out to Absolute... Uh, no, Smirnoff Pink Lemonade Vodka. Yeah, girl. <laughs> it's pretty strong. And reusable metal straws. And reusable metal straws, click clacking in the background. Mm -hmm. Sustainability is important. Mm. Well, let's jump into it. So, we're still on the drag race down under bandwagon. Uh, Yeah. Still not impressed. No, in fact... After the episode this week, even less impressed because uh, they brought back... Art Simone. Art Simone. Mm Mm-hmm. With no explanation. Nope, none whatsoever. No explanation. <laughs> I think we deserve to understand how a contestant was sent home I and mean, then two episodes later brought back. I mean, I won't. Uh, very peripherally uh, paying attention to that anyway, but based on the fallout of him going so soon and being, I guess, such a notable person, uh, I think that. I don't know if it was at the producer level or somewhere, somehow, uh, uh, somebody made the call above Rue's head, I think, to bring this person back. And the awkwardness of it is that they're just not going to say anything. Because that's just... Why haven't they done that before then? Right. And then in the bottom were Karen from Finance and Anita Wiglet. Anita Wiglet was sent home. Mm-hmm. I thought she was the nicest contender. Yeah. Which is unfortunate because the Australian cast is pretty nasty (laughs) like they're not a nice group of people and not not in the good way nasty so it's sad that the nicest person was sent home already but yeah it's it's funny to watch you know because as the shows become more and more overly produced to watch these queens just rag on one another and then when they get to tell their personal stories it's you know searching for solace and empathy it's like well you're not you don't come across as a nice person Anyway, The Lost Flowers of Alice Hart. Yeah, some big new Sigourney Weaver news this week. Uh, she signed on to a seven-episode series with Amazon Prime. It's going to be filmed in Australia later this year based on the uh, international bestseller written by Holly Ringland, which I now have a copy of and will have to read Um Notably, I think that news came out the day after Sigourney Weaver's last day of filming on Call Jane in Connecticut. All right. So we had all kinds of Sigourney stuff coming out. The Kingdom. Yeah, another project uh, that I uh, heard news of this week is Lars von Trier, uh, who you are familiar with as well, uh, is filming the third season of his series, The Kingdom. Uh, I think the... The first I've seen the first season. I found memories of watching that in college, renting a two-tape VHS set from Hollywood Video and binging junk food and watching The Kingdom. And I don't know that I ever saw season two, but obviously, I don't know. Anytime Lars von Trier does something, I'm usually interested. There's a movie that you have a disc for that you're asking me to watch called New Order. Yes. Oh my God. I, I want us to cover it. I think it's going to be on my top 10 of the year. Um, for this year, it competed in Venice and won, was it the second place prize? It won a major prize out of Venice in 2020, a Michelle Franco film, uh, Mexican, uh, A24, <clears throat> Neon, Neon put it out. It opened yesterday. Uh, we still need to get to it in that Eric Bana film, by the way. Uh, yes. Did you even talk about what it's about? Um, <laughs> no, because oh. I, I'm still hoping we're going to review it. Okay. Uh, well, I don't know anything about this movie. Oh. So. Well, he's... And I don't know that you even just said what it... Like, I didn't. It's a, He's a very provocative filmmaker. All of his movies are uh, intended to make you feel upset or angry, but uh, it, it's basically class warfare, post-apocalyptic feeling class warfare in Mexico. Oh, I am familiar with this movie. It's like a, a party and something yes. happens... Yeah, there's a class uprising. All right. State funeral. Uh, Sergei Loznitsa, the Ukrainian filmmaker. I saw this at TIFF 2019. It's a documentary. It premiered on Mubi. 
uh, yesterday, the May 21st. Uh, it's, it's basically just footage from Joseph Stalin's funeral. Uh, it's fascinating stuff. And if you're interested in anything along those lines, I, I definitely recommend uh, catching up with that on movie. And then this past week, Bed Midler, Sarica, Jessica Parker, uh-huh. and uh, Kathy Najimy signed on to do Hocus Pocus 3. Yes. I didn't know there was a Hocus Pocus 2. I guess I didn't either. Are you sure it's Hocus Pocus 3? Did I say... No, I said Hocus Pocus 2. Oh. <laughs> oh, so I just told you the wrong thing. You told... Well, because I'm not a huge fan of Hocus Pocus, so when you said Hocus Pocus 3... I'm like, yeah, that sounds right, because I wouldn't have watched Hocus Pocus. <laughs> yeah, there's not, because Bette Midler's never done a sequel before. Okay, so Hocus Pocus 2. Yes, with directed by Anne Fletcher. What year is Hocus Pocus? 1993. Oh, wow, so... Kenny Ortega directed that. Many years later. Yeah. Okay, well, I mean, I'm sure we'll check it out. Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm not the biggest fan. Bette Midler is a lot of fun in that. Um, I remember not being allowed to watch it as a child, because... My parents would go through um, infrequent, in, in, yeah, infrequent uh, rumblings of things that were classified as new age. That was a term that was used a lot as I, when I was a child. Like Yanni at the Acropolis was new age, the Ghostbusters cartoon, Hocus Pocus. Anyway, uh, so I probably saw it uh, when I was, it probably would have made more of an impact if I had seen it when it came out. Okay, there is a documentary series called The Staircase, Mm -hmm. which I really enjoyed. Yes. And then you're telling me it's going to be made into a movie. Antonio Campos, who anytime he does a new project, uh, I'm excited about. You, we reviewed The Devil All the Time by him, but um, he also did Christine. um, I'm forgetting the name of the Ezra Miller film he kind of broke out with, and Simon Killer with Brady Corbett. Yes, Juliette Binoche has starred on and uh, has signed on, and Tony Collette is also starring, and Colin Firth and Rosemary DeWitt. Uh, so that and it's going to be a, a mini series. Oh, so I'm, interesting. I, I think that'll be excellent. Interesting. Uh, I just want to say every episode that please watch Legendary on HBO Max. I really, really, really like that show. Black queer and trans, people of color, BIPOC people, uh, trans uh, folks, just such a great show, and I wanted to come back for many, many more seasons. Okay, so movies we watched, or you watched, last week that were not covered on our YouTube channel. One was Hollywood Shuffle. Yeah, Robert Townsend, um, which I've been wanting to watch for years, and you know how things go. you know, Townsend's directed two television films that we watch every couple of years in our house. Which are? Um, Holiday Heart? Holiday Heart. <gasps> and I didn't know Robert Townsend did Yeah. Oh, and, I love Holiday Heart. And Jackie's Heart. Back. Oh, I, I'm due to rewatch Jackie's Back. Um, yes, so Hollywood Shuffle, which... <laughs> you were laughing a lot. I was. It was very much ahead of its time. Uh... And, you I, know, was, I was working on editing something, yeah, I think. But so all, I didn't pay full attention. But And all the great people that are on the sidelines in that movie. Uh, one of which who is the late, great Paul Mooney. Um, who which just, I'll talk about shortly. Who just died this week. Uh, but we watched that a day or two before, I think two days before his death was announced. Um, he's the NAACP president. <laughs> uh, Jive Turkey. Yeah, we watched that. It was a um, Hollywood Shuffle inspired me because you know I, I like a lot of black exploitation films. Uh, fully realizing that you know there are th- these are compromised um, characterizations, obviously, but uh, it it made me hungry to seek out something I haven't seen before, uh, which there aren't. I don't think there are that many, but I'd never seen Jive Turkey, and it was on Amazon, <laughs> and you know it's. Entertaining. Isn't she great? Uh, yes, one of the few things that I had extra time to watch. I had Kino Lorber's new Blu-ray uh, from several months back just sitting here in a stack. Um, yeah, uh, it's from the year 2000. It's the last film directed by Andrew Bergman, probably best known for Striptease, which I hated. Uh, Bette Midler and Nathan Lane. It's a kind of a comedy biopic about... Jacqueline Suzanne, the woman who wrote Valley of the Dolls. 
Interesting. Which I'm due for a rewatch of Valley of the Dolls. And I've never seen the sequel, uh, both of which are on Criterion. And Shoah Four Sisters. Yeah, uh, we reviewed um, Final Act. No. Account. Final Account. I'm sorry. <laughs> you called that movie so many names while we were preparing. Final Act. Last, last Attempt. Solution. <laughs> Terminal Solution. Um, yeah. Well, because I didn't watch it, so I didn't have a connection to it. And I. Uh, it, it, it just it reminded me of um, Claude Landsman, as I think I brought up in the review, and I've never watched the nine and a half hour Shoah, uh, and I do have, I think it's Cohen Media Group's Blu-ray of Shoah Four Sisters, uh, which was released in 2018, and it's just basically four women that survived the Holocaust being interviewed in the 1970s, uh, which this the breakup is perfect because it's, you know, it's like 270 odd minutes and... It, it's hard to watch all of that in one sitting, so I'm, I'm actually only halfway done with that. I'm sure. All right, so like you mentioned, uh, Paul Mooney died this past week. Mm-hmm. I'm wondering if people are as familiar with him as I am and then as you are as well. I'm, I'm even curious, did you know who Paul Mooney was before I introduced you to him? Um, he only, by face, I recognized him because I watched a lot of films obviously, uh, but I didn't realize, I think it wasn't until I started dating you that I realized uh, his little, you know, kind of uh, important legacy. So Paul Mooney died at 79. I think his uh, rise to fame was being a writer for Richard Pryor. Mm-hmm. So he wrote for Richard when he was on SNL. Richard Pryor had the short-lived primetime TV show he wrote on, um, and then other acting roles Pryor had, Rich, uh, Paul Mooney would contribute writing but I think I knew I'm trying to think when I first saw him it was probably the the Dave Chappelle show Paul Mooney had a character named Negro Damas we watched there's a standalone Negro Damas that we rented when we first started dating well his comedy special is not called Negro Damas he has two... Do, what, oh, what was the comedy special you rented? The, the two that we've watched together are Analyzing White America, and the other is Know Your History, Jesus is Black, and So Is Cleopatra. Oh, yes. That but was his amazing. character, he, on um, Dave Chappelle's show, he did a character named Negro Damas. Um, Paul mm-hmm. Mooney also wrote for In Living Color, and he's the one who created the character Homie the Clown, which okay. is played by Damon Wayans. Um, he's also in Bamboozled. Uh-huh, and Bustin' Loose, which I just re- which I watched with Richard Pryor and Cicely Tyson. Yeah, so Paul Mooney, um, I, I don't know, the first time I saw his stand-up, I've had a very strong connection to it. I don't want to say that I think everyone should go out and, like, watch his stand-up special, because he has a very specific brand of comedy that I think... I've had conversations with people about him, and I've heard people talk about him, and, um... Many people find his comedy or his brand of comedy problematic and um, dated because it is very highly race-based. I think, to me, he represents a black man of a particular age who experienced racism in a much more vitriolic way than someone my age has. So I think he's earned the right to say a lot of the things he says. And if we consider his perspective, it seems appropriate to me. Um... So I've just enjoyed him for so long. Mm -hmm. Something I wanted to say that I I was struggling with, like whether I should say it or not, but I'm going to say it because I think... I think I know what you're... Because I don't think being gay is like a bad thing, but I always... I think I connected to Paul Mooney because of his race-based comedy, but also I always got the sense he was gay. (laughs) And I I don't know why I think that. Um, uh, And who knows? Maybe he was. Maybe it'll come out. Maybe his... A past lover or his partner will come to the funeral and speak like Luther Vandross's did, but, <laughs> um, but you know what, what, whether he was or not, he had a sensibility that I really connected to. Um, so sad to see him go, but he has, um, you know, his legacy will live on. I think he's watching his um, stand up is a a good test for white liberal progressives, uh, and the reactions to him might. Yield interesting results. Okay, that's a good point. I actually do recommend, especially if you're um, a Caucasoid, because I think 
I think that he does elicit a response. Mm-hmm. And I think it's so important to witness older people of color talking about race. Mm-hmm. And the anger with which they speak because it comes from a place that's much more connected in a different way. I'm not saying that a 20-year-old person of color can't experience these things, but someone like him has experienced... And then, you know, having been involved, like Hollywood, within Hollywood and Hollywood adjacent for so long, I'm sure he saw so many crazy things. Oh, yeah. I just find his perspective so interesting. You know, if you do go out there and, like, you know, stream one of his comedy specials, it is shocking if you're not familiar with it. Oh, it's... I mean, it's... (laughs) Listening to him rag on Meryl Streep and Beyonce or Oprah, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a lot, but I I I appreciate it for what it is, and what it is is the musings of a, you know, a black man born in mm-hmm. you know nineteen. I should have looked up when he was born. What late thirties? So. Yeah, that's Paul Mooney. Um, another person who died this past week is Charles Grodin, mm-hmm. who I'm not as familiar with. So why don't you talk about him? Oh, Charles Grodin. Um, strangely, we just watched a Charles Grodin movie, too, recently with the, the King Kong, uh, in which he plays a, a, a snively oil tycoon that, to me, that reminded me of like a thin Jason Alexander. Um, Charles Grodin, I, I grew up with Beethoven as a child, the, the movie about the big St. Bernard with Bonnie Hunt, right? Uh, and its sequel with Debbie Mazar. Uh, my dad, for some reason, never liked Charles Grodin. I don't know if it's because, you know, we're both bald and Charles Grodin had an obvious rug, but and that was maybe a point of contention for him. I don't know. But he never liked Charles Grodin. And you know how you kind of reflect the sentiments of your parents for a while. Um, I, so I think Charles Grodin was just never anybody I thought of till I was a teenager in... You know, he's in Rosemary's Baby. Um, Midnight Run is probably a classic. Uh, of course, everybody's been posting since his death things that they want to rewatch. Or I've never seen Clifford with Martin Short, uh, but I I, re- I distinctly remember um, uh, previews for that film. Uh, obviously, uh, oh God, Elaine May is a new leaf. Yeah, he he's got a, he's an important figure uh, in American cinema, and had a, a very distinct way about him. Um, Noah Baumbach used that, I think, to great effect in uh, When We're Young in 2014. But yeah, you know, he was uh, in his 80s as well. Um, Yeah. Okay, so the topic for today is something that came from... Or did you have something else to talk about? Um, Let me look at my list. It wasn't on my list. Let me look at my list. Oh, I did... uh, Paul Mooney was born in 1941 in Shreveport, Louisiana. Okay. Nut bush. Uh, well, Nut bush. <laughs> well, everybody knows where Tina Turner was born, which I think is funny. Um, we can delete that last. Oh, well, good. Okay. So we reviewed A Quiet Place to. We filmed the video last week, but we're not releasing it until this coming Wednesday because it's so spoiler heavy. Yes. But in that review, you talk about sort of like the universe, the universality of fear, and I think you felt like you didn't get a chance to expound on it enough in the video. So then you were talking about it a couple of days ago, and I thought it would, uh, it, it spawned a good topic for today, which I think is basically like what scares us. But why don't you start with explaining what you were intending on saying in that A Quiet Place 2 review? Well, yeah, I, I felt like I had an idea that I bungled and wasn't very articulate about um and and not intentionally it just and maybe it wasn't fully formed in my mind yet uh but somebody had i follow on instagram had posted somebody's tweet about uh, the hook that i kind of was going for and basically what this person wrote was many white people assume that white experiences are some kind of baseline neutral universal and that poc experiences are some kind of extra sprinkled on top of that baseline but white experiences are not universal or neutral they're specific to the experience of being white and i think in the rev- our review uh, i was talking you know because a Quiet Place and the sequel, directed by John Krasinski, are both very Spielbergian in that way that it focuses on this very square, familiar, close-knit family that automatically we're meant to empathize with and, and hope for the survival of. And 
and as, as this conversation goes on, we can probably get into some of my gripes maybe about uh, the first Quiet Place that make me sound like less of an asshole than I do in the review. But uh, just how, because part of, in important note, Joseph did not see A Quiet Place Part Two because due to COVID restrictions, um, guests weren't allowed. But there's, there's dialogue in the film about who's worth saving. Um, because beyond Emily Blunt's family and her children, there's other stragglers throughout their area, and Killian Murphy's character says something about how no one else is worth saving. They've become, you know, savages. And, yeah, who who's worth saving and who we're supposed to, meant to have an affinity for? And I just think it's interesting, because A Quiet Place 2 starts out in at this um, baseball game, and, you know, it's that feeling of, it's American as apple pie, or as apple pie as Spielberg, or however... <laughs> However, you kind of um, want to chase that rabbit hole, but uh, it, they could, I felt like they could have just been. We could have reached back to the 1950s, and this could have been the day the Earth stood still. And how they represent this nuclear familial unit of how life's supposed to be, and how they really have something to lose. And I think as we talked through what our, we wanted our conversation to be was that concept of white fear and having something to lose as a starting point. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. I think, well, and I also wanted to, my thought when you were talking about what you just said was, well, two things. I wanted to talk about what scares us, like specifically, like in movies, what generally, in, like, right, chills your bones. But also... <laughs> What would horror look like? Because currently horror is predominantly created by white men, right? The stories are written by white men. Like, the, like almost all. And the films are directed by white men and produced by white men. Overwhelmingly, right? Like almost all the things in entertainment. But specifically horror. So these are like white stories. So what would horror look like? What would the landscape of horror be like if... And, and I'm not going to answer these questions because I don't know and I don't want to fill them with stereotypes. But what if... You know, let's say black women were sort of the predominant figures in horror. What would that look like? And then what, when we think about horror in other countries and, what in, and what's infused in that, right? So countries that are predominantly Catholic, then you'll find horror fables that revolve around like demon possessions, exorcisms. Then when you go to countries like Indonesia, where they have very specific folklore, or the Philippines, you know, like where there's like vampires and... So I thought it was very interesting, but first, can you explain, like, in a film, what scares you? Um, usually, uh, nothing supernatural, usually, because I, I don't believe in anything. I'm very entertained by supernatural horror films. I find The Shining, for instance, the, the Kubrick film, uh, has its moments that are chilling in a fun way, <laughs> but... Where films that I feel frightened or kind of disturbed, I think is a better word than I, I will feel disturbed at things rather than frightened. It's usually the, what's capable uh, of humans at the hand of other humans. So I think, you know, in in that sense, Holocaust films like The Painted Bird recently felt like a horror movie. Like I felt horrified having to sit through that, um, or. Uh, Films that I think I had to turn off, like as a teenager, because I thought they were, I was creeped out, were Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer and Man Bites Dog. Um, and those are, those are about serial killers and, and watching heinous things happen to people or watching women get raped. Um, I found it very hard to get through them, the uh, Amazon Prime Television series. Like one episode... Like, it's definitely not something I can binge. Like, that's something I have to... When you're, when you're laying... When you're witness to the capabilities of what people can really do to one another, that's what's scary to me. And how they get away with it. How it's condoned, even. Sure. Yeah, I think, you know, jump scares are effective. Because sure. they're visceral. Um, I don't... Generally, I mean, almost always supernatural components don't um, elicit fear in me 
Again, um, entertaining, but <laughs> entertaining, but I don't believe in those things, so they're not compelling. Um, I I also agree things that could actually happen scare me or did happen or did happen. You so know, it's very difficult to watch uh, storylines about like anything involving slavery. I find horrific. Anything involving the Holocaust or any sort of genocide, horrific. Um, I often think of the movie Vacancy as a reference, like. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. even though it's sort of chaotic and hyperbolic, it's like, well, but it could happen. You know, people do make snuff films and there are these small motels um, on the, you know, in the middle of nowhere or where who the, knows what happens. The new film, The Retreat, uh, I, I think could be part of our the conversation retreat. that we reviewed this week. What about was that about? The lesbian slasher film. Oh, sure. Ab- yes. About queer people. Okay. Yeah. So, yes. So then... So then let's transition to, I'm thinking like, okay, as a black gay person, there are a number of things that I think, like, and then how I grew up, um, can um, elicit a reaction. So I think, like, police brutality or feeling like, um, like I have no control over what law enforcement will do to me. So like the justice system is very scary to me. Mm -hmm. Because I grew up thinking like, and, and, and witnessing that there's bias when it comes to law enforcement and the judicial system. Also knowing that like only certain people can afford counsel. Mm-hmm. So I think I was always afraid like I can't get in trouble because I won't be able to afford help getting out of trouble. So things involving that uh, scare me. And then as a gay person, especially a gay person at, of my age, I think like AIDS is scary. Yeah. And also the advent of, like, cyber, like, you know, cyber sex was a thing before, like, hookup culture, Uh right? So I think that was very scary, like, not knowing who I was talking to, Mm -hmm. and then the potential of meeting someone, and all of the precarious situations I could have found myself in, and knock on wood didn't, but those things scare me. But, as we were talking about earlier... As someone who grew up in South Central Los Angeles, I remember being a kid and hearing like on the news and in film like how scary it is, how dangerous it is, gang violence, drive-by shootings, um, and thinking, but that's not my existence. Like mm-hmm. every day I walk to school, come back, play in the front yard, sit at home and wait for my mom to cook dinner, and I don't hear that many gunshots. I don't, you know, there are a lot of helicopters and sirens, but I didn't feel fear. But I can imagine if, you know, my white counterpart who grew up in Newport Beach and lives in a beautiful home and, you know, I'm, I'm sure my existence does seem horrific. So then mentioning films like, oh my God, what's the one with Mike, uh, where the two boys come into the house uh, and terrorize the family? Um, funny Games. Funny Games. Watching that film just seems like so foreign to me because it's like, well, growing up in an urban area, and even now we, you know, we have a nice home, but we live in an urban area, and the idea that like someone would break into our home just doesn't seem real to me because it is more highly populated, and it would just, it would seem difficult, like 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 a person breaking and entering into our home, they probably wouldn't easily escape it's, it's very difficult to know who's home right because yeah. there are cars everywhere mm-hmm. you know no like no well, one would the, know when a house is abandoned well there are no alleys where the, the, to escape things, easily things are like properties that are abutted next to another one another yeah it's not it's a mess. but then you think if you grew up in iowa somewhere in like a big farmhouse like in cold blood then yeah i mean the pro so you know, I'm saying race, but it, it, I mean, it's socioeconomic, it's racial, and it's not meant to be like a negative. It's just people's experience really do influence what scares I, I them. I think a funny thing, you, you bring me up funny games, is I always felt, because, you know, Han- Hanukkah is uh, obviously toying with our need for catharsis through on-screen violence with that, that film and its remake. But something I always feel watching that movie is what happens when the boy dies. Like, there's... You, there's a point of no return, and the point of no return for this, you know, affluent Austrian couple in the original is that they can never go back to life the way it was. So things can, trauma can happen to you, but the point of no return is. And, uh, you know, talking about affluent white people, 
it's easier to topple that point of no return, perhaps, which is why they continually are kind of the subject of that. I'm all over the place, but we have time. So we did a, like, a, there's a YouTube channel called Sledgehammer Horror, and mm -hmm. we did one of his episodes, and basically it is um, my first horror film. Mm -hmm. So um, we basically told stories about our first horror film experiences. Mine was um, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, mm -hmm. and you had Psycho 4 and, and Squirm. Squirm. And, you know, when I think about, obviously as a kid, anything horror-related scared me. All the Friday the 13th and uh, Nightmare on Elm Streets and Halloweens were terrifying to me. But can you think of a film, like the first film that really, like, scared you to the bone? Like as a child? Um... Well, just your first, because Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 did scare me, but it was because it was my first time seeing, like, murder. And it did have an impact, but I have a better example of something that really did frighten the shit out of me. I think, um, Ernest Scared Stupid uh, and Gremlins uh, were, were two films that also, I would have a, a, the kind of reaction where I would have to run out of the room because I felt so unnerved or scared at, as a kid, uh, but I would beg my grandmother to continually rent. Really? <laughs> yeah. So I, li I liked the feeling of it, but I also remember feeling very frightened. Interesting. And what's your example? So mine was The Blair Witch Project. Oh, well, yeah. 1999. So I was 22 years old. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, because I thought it was real, because that was the marketing campaign, mm -hmm. and even though I don't think I believed in ghosts back then, because I thought it was real... It scared me, but what added to the effect was my roommate at the time had seen it already, like the day before, mm -hmm. and he knew that I was going to see it the following day, and when I came home, he, and for anyone who's seen the film, this reference makes sense, when I came home, the lights were off, and this fool was standing in the corner, like facing the corner, so when I turned on the lights, I see him in a corner, oh, like facing away from me. And just that experience and, you know, knowing that it was real, like thinking that it was real for, I think, over a week until, you know, because this is before like stuff on, you know, the internet or social media. So it took a while for it to trickle down that this was right. not an right. actual found footage film. Uh, that was the first time I was literally so afraid. I, re I recall calling my mom. I recall having a friend come stay with me. Like I was so frightened. But, you know, that innocence is lost now as oh, a 42-year-old who's done and seen a lot of things. So it's interesting what does, you know, oftentimes like watching like true crime stuff or even a film we reviewed that I didn't necessarily love starring um, Kelvin Harrison Jr. Monster? Monster? Mm -hmm. Or Loose? No, Monster. Okay. And it's about this young man. He's 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, who's being tried as an adult in uh, as an accessory to murder and like an armed robbery. And we see him on trial for a year, I believe. Mm -hmm. And he's ultimately found not guilty. You know, I like to spoil everything. Mm -hmm. But just that experience. And, and I live in constant fear. I've had many run-ins with law enforcement. None that resulted in my being arrested. But they've always been negative. Mm -hmm. And I live in this constant fear of like getting into trouble. And I think, um, you know, as a 42-year-old, that's probably the thing that scares me the most is law enforcement, which is so interesting in light of, you know, the events of last summer and people sort of having this awakening. And it just feels like, but I've always been so afraid of the police. And I'm like a lighter-skinned black man who, you know, by all accounts is pretty square and corny and I've never... You know, I dress pretty standard. You know, I don't really call attention to myself. I've never driven a car that I think is like, you know, I, I drive a nice car. So I assume like, well, I'm like an older person of color who dresses pretty basic and I don't drive fast. And I'm still afraid mm -hmm. of the police. I'm afraid of getting pulled over because I feel like anything can happen. 
That's what scares me. And the IRS. <laughs> the IRS scares me. Um, well, I mean, that's that, that that's the fear that's kind of taps into Orwellian um, and Kafka-esque, you know, like the trial and uh, 1984, this big brother. And um, yeah, I, I, I believe, I agree with those fears, that which is why I found those novels captivating. Um, yeah, the possible, once you realize, once you kind of see behind the curtain and how things can really be, Unless you're a person of means. Yeah. Well, yeah, even as an adult and realizing, like, retaining counsel for mm -hmm. legal troubles is not inexpensive and could destroy... And, you know, I listened to, I've listened to hundreds of episodes on Dateline and just understanding, like, even the accusation can ruin someone's life. Mm -hmm. If I were accused of sexually assaulting someone, that could destroy my life, even though I, I'm innocent the process of proving my innocence could destroy me. I can lose my job, rack up hundreds of thousands of dollars in legal fees, lose my home, my savings, have to cash out my retirement, all over something that was ultimately not true or found to be not true. So that scares the shit out of me, which probably makes sense why a lot of people like, or, or why like true crime type shows like, you know, NCIS and all... SV, all, all those type shows um, are so popular with adults because I think that's the kind of stuff that really is disturbing mm -hmm. and gets your blood pressure up and uh, elicits a response. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Do you have any other things you want to say? Are you, you don't have... I thought we were going to talk about um, differences with uh, how horror looks when it's directed by someone who's not white well no i mentioned that but i don't know that i want to like like give examples because i don't want to perpetuate stereotypes and that's not really what i'm thinking i'm just posing the I was, question i was talking about like space like we because when we discussed this previously we we're talking about them not the french film the television series okay. and get out um ver well yes so it, when I think about, I mean, I'm going to have to delve into stereotypes, I suppose, but when I think about, like, what scares white people, I think um, being invaded seems to be a common theme, mm -hmm. whether it's like a home invasion or, you know, d others invading their space, which to me seems very in line with, in the United States, sort of the, and I want to tread lightly, but that... That theme makes sense to me, and I'm and I, and I would just love to know like what, you know, specifically like black people in America think is scary, and would these same tropes? Well, I I think what's funny is you know there was that sweet spot in the nineteen eighties to probably mid nineties ish of adult erotic um, thrillers coming out of Hollywood studios, right? You know, like Hand the Rock's Cradle, Fatal Attraction, blah blah blah. Uh, almost all by and large about white affluent people. Uh, and now, you know, 30 years on, we're seeing some of those remnants coming back of those films. Like that, like, uh, what's the one with Michael Ely and Hilary Swank recently? Oh, for right. Um, and, or the one with Nia Long and... And Nia uh, Long and Omar Epps. And, yeah. yeah. And, and how, for so long, it was, there was only white representation. Uh, but how films that are allowing others uh, to be represented in all kinds of genre films, how they automatically seem derivative because they're really just copying the same template, but how it doesn't really quite work the same way across the board. So we were talking about me specifically, like trying to think about films. Well, you know, it's it, the the list is very short for black or horror films created by black people featuring black characters. Well, you know, you had the black exploitation, some sure. of those elements from the seventies, which some are, you know, JD's Revenge. If you haven't seen it, is definitely worth seeing. But even just thinking about stories that feature black characters, you know, like primary black characters or black storylines. And, and thinking about what I recall, 
The only examples I can think of beyond like Blackula and Tales from the Hood and Bones. Tales from the Hood is good. Uh, Candyman. Candyman, which Bernard Rose directed the first the the first one, but you know Nia DaCosta has directed the remake, which is delayed through this year. So I'm very curious. Uh, to see what that looks like. From and then her. after Candyman, I don't think I can recall anything until we get to Get Out and then Us. There are some others, I think. <laughs> you think. Uh, <laughs> well, I just got to think. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I, again, I would just, you know, thinking about what the horror landscape would look like in the United States if... Even if, like, I mean, I'll take white women. Like, just anyone else creating stories that are a little different. Um, or, or people who are different creating these stories and what they would look like. You get things like vampires, like Vampire in Brooklyn and Blade. Sure. And Bones with Snoop Dogg. Sure, sure. Which I mentioned, but yeah, like Blade and... But anyway. There, but, you know, it's a, by and large, of course, before Jordan Peele, there's a lot of... There are black characters, you know, uh, Night of the Living Dead or Dawn of the Dead. Oh, um, we had also mentioned... So then there were two examples where I recall being so intrigued. One was Halloween Resurrection, I believe. With Buster Rhymes. Buster Rhymes and Tyra Banks. And, mm-hmm. and then there was... I Still I Know, still what, know you, what You yeah. Did Last Summer, where Brandy was a primary mm-hmm. character. And just being so excited to see someone I recognized in a in like in a popular sort of suspense sure. horror thriller. Yeah, because usually black people showing up, they they they're usually practicing voodoo or something. Like I think of Delroy Lindo and The Devil's Advocate, or well, because the joke has always been that in these slasher films, black characters are the first ones to go. Mm-hmm. And then you had said something that I really didn't, I hadn't thought about before, but it makes sense is the, the reason that may have been the case is because a lot of these filmmakers just didn't know how to handle black characters, yeah. but they felt maybe obligated to have some diversity. So they thought, let me throw in this black guy, but he'll definitely be the first one to get killed off because I don't know how to develop. Because him. I don't know how to write. I don't know how to write yeah. his voice. Mm-hmm. So that's unfortunate. Yeah. Um, or, you know, the likelihood that a black actor had top billing in a film was unlikely, so clearly they're going to go first, right? Because obviously, based on who's cast in the film, we know who's probably going to make it to the end. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. Sorry, I, I got stuck thinking about voodoo priestesses. But, <laughs> uh, you know, like, there, there's that mysticism about black people that that still use is used effectively, like even Loretta Devine recently in um, Spell, with Omar sure. Hardwick, but uh, but from a much more genuine black perspective. Uh, but but like Ruby D, I know has played that a few times. Cat People, the Cat People remake for sure. Now that I'm talking about it, and I should have researched better because I am thinking of more examples, and and that's great. But um, and and I think as I think about them, I can see that the storylines are so different. So it's an opportunity, especially for someone like me who really enjoys horror as a genre and being so hungry for new and like like new stories and things that will get me excited. The easiest way to achieve that is to give new people voices and opportunities. I agree. Right. But but instead of recycling like so another saw treatment and even though, you know, the new saw installment spiral with Chris Rock and Samuel L. Jackson was amusing enough. I think, you know, getting new stories out there with new people. Well, genre, horror and comedy, those are always the best mechanisms for exploring uncomfortable subtext because they're they're operating in the background and we're aware of it, even if subconsciously. Um, I've always thought that there are so many untold stories in genre involving... uh, people of color and queer people uh, and trans people that that need to be tapped. Because even, so, the, the retreat, which opened this week from Pat Mills, really plays on that fear of space for queer people outside of the metropolitan urban area where, you know, you have anonymity in, in going to a small rural area where, you know, stereotypically we run into um, violent 
homophobia, uh, something that I, I think even today many of us are still able to universally experience. Um, and how that film minds in a very obvious, predictable way. Uh, but, but there are other ways to play on those fears, I think, uh, from queer people that we need to hear, for instance. But I, I was going to segue into, uh, I just started reading this book called Gay Bar by Jeremy Atherton Lynn. Um, and even in the insert, it talks about the journey that emerges is a stylish and nuanced inquiry into the link between place and identity about, you know, the, the safe spaces of the gay bar and how even, I, I think, playing with ideas of how perverting our stereotypical safe spaces, I think, is interesting. Mm -hmm. What else do you have to say about what scares us? <sighs> Not a home, uh, real life. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> going to work and paying I, these bills. And... I, I think uh, after the last presidential election, I'm still kind of just trying not to think about anything. Um, uh, you, you know, like you got to let the, like when you're in a car crash and the glass is embedded in your skin and you kind of have to let it slowly work itself out after, over time. Oh, um, that's pretty dramatic. <laughs> that's pretty dramatic. Please, the last four years, especially 2020, are, have been horrendous uh, as far as emotional and mental well-being, but uh, collectively. Sure. I mean, sure. I think there have been worse times in history. And, of course, and, of course. And I think there have been worse times in my life. I think... That's you know true, what, you, you know what really stresses me out is other people's stress. Mm -hmm. which I've shared with you before. Like, you being frustrated about something frustrates me more than the thing you're being frustrated about. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, yes, 2020 has been difficult, and it has been scary, like, the, the unknown of, like, when things will go back to normal combined with, you know, the political landscape. But surprisingly, I'm optimistic about... Well, I don't think I'm optimistic. I think I'm just a little more... Um, I, don't, I mean, I don't know how to qualify it. I just don't... Xanax. I, I qualify it as Xanax. Well, I just... <laughs> times have been worse. And what's the worst... No, that's true. And, and, and what's the worst that can happen? Like, I mean... You know, honestly, that's how I usually think. Like, what's the worst that can happen? So, that, like, we run out of money, and then we lose our home, and then what? And then I... Like, my car gets repossessed, and then what? Like, mm -hmm. I'm not going to be homeless. Like, I... We know enough people that someone will let us... You know, sure. we might have to get rid of all our stuff, but I'm not going to be sleeping under a tree somewhere. Like, I have family. Like, I there, there is always a place for me to go, and someone always has a plate of food for me to eat. So I think when I think about that, it's just like sometimes stressing and being afraid of what life can throw my way doesn't seem necessary. Right. And I, well, but as sensible as I sound, obviously, my negativity runs deep about other sure things. It sure does. <laughs> but I mean, and, you know, I've always been the type, too, that I have to, if I always go to what's the worst possible outcome in any scenario, and if I can mentally handle that, which of course I always have, then, then it's, that, that's the exercise of like, if I can handle the worst, it's fine. Um, so yeah, we're certainly not living in that. It's certainly not, uh, I don't, I'm not anticipating. Uh, blind uh, aliens with cochlear issues are going to come down and we'll have to battle them like in a quiet place. But um... COVID scared me. COVID sure. scared me. Uh, but, but what scared me was I was more concerned about people I care about mm -hmm. than myself. You know, I've lived long enough. I can go any day now. But thinking about <laughs> other people, it did scare me. But... The others that want to live. Yeah, the, those who do want to live, I, like, I want that for you. Mm -hmm. But, um, <laughs> you know, now it's just kind of like the idea of whatever normal is, and I don't know that I want things to go back to normal, like, we could do better, and... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I'm interested in seeing what improvements can be made out of the epiphanies we've all had. I have been wearing my mask everywhere I go, and I have been more diligent with cleaning and sanitizing, and I haven't been sick once in, you know, 14 months. Mm -hmm. So I think that's exciting of how I can, you know, do better to keep myself healthy and, you know, not putting myself in situations where I know I don't feel comfortable 
or being more selective about the quote-unquote dangerous situations I put myself in. So, specific, you know, as an example, like going to a bar. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe being a little more selective about how often I go. And I don't go to bars really at all, like that often at all. But just saying, I think, you know, taking some personal risk assessment and making choices that we feel comfortable with. So, you know, a lot of us do a lot of things that put us at risk. Sure. Which I kind of liken to, like, how I approach my consumption of sugar. Is like, you know, I used to not have high standards. Nothing against Little Debbie, but... You know, I used to eat Little Debbie stuff and the cheap candy, like the snack size stuff. And it's like, I'm just fucking up my nutrition over such cheap stuff. So now I tend to be a little more discerning. Discerning. And I think when it comes to, you know, the risk I put myself into, I need to be a little more discerning. And sure. I think this past year and nearly a half has taught me that. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm ready to go back to bars and dance. Uh, well, I'm good ready, for I'm you. I hope I, I hope you get to do that. Same. Well, I don't care to do that. But the uh, do you have anything else you'd like to bring up? Um, no, it's just it's been a long week. There were exciting things that happened that I'm not at liberty to talk we about yet. We can't mention, but there are some exciting. Well, I mean, I will speak for you a little bit. Okay, sure. Well, because you well no, we haven't mentioned this on the no. like on the YouTube channel. Okay, so then I can't mention it. Why? But well, because I don't want to jinx it. Oh, well. But 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 Nick is working on a project that's gained quite a bit of traction, and hopefully, good news continues to flow. Mm-hmm. So hopefully, we hit a point where we can make an announcement, mm-hmm. which will be very exciting. Every day, I'm getting one step closer to being a real housewife. Oh, so God. so that's exciting. <laughs> Um, I have a late, I have a very late night call tonight. Maybe I'll have some better news tomorrow, but, uh, yeah. Uh, any final words? Uh, you know, uh, power to the people. Power to the people. We need to bring that back, I think. Well, don't text and drive. Uh, Don't drink and drive. Yeah. And no glove, no love. Unless you're on prep, apparently. If you're on prep. Oh, boy. I mean, nobody wants general warts or herpes, but, you know. But you have them, so there you go. It's risk assessment. This is... (laughs) It's your risk assessment. How well do you know the person? You Generally, you don't know them that well at all. True, but Ah! you you can... We live in a virtual environment where you can ask to see uh, results and recent test results. And I'm sure everyone's doing that. Uh, anything else? I'm just saying, we don't have to be draconian. Oh, well, don't we? Okay. <laughs> Toodaloo. Bye. <laughs>